Welcome, future doctors, to another episode of the Future Minority Doctor Podcast with Dr. Sulma and Marina, where we bring you conversations to empower and inspire you to contribute to your community and the world by becoming a doctor. Hello, future minority doctors. Thank you once again for joining us today as we continue our interviews with medical students to share their MCAT success stories. I hope you all have enjoyed listening to all the stories thus far and have also gained something from them to help you better prepare to become a doctor. Remember, this is for you. Many minority students struggle with the MCAT. I surely did, and it would have been wonderful to have heard these stories throughout my journey. Please take advantage of the great advice shared and pass it on to others. We are truly stronger together. Today, I am pleased to have another MCAT success story. We will be talking to future minority Dr. Camila Hurtado. Camila is a medical student at the UC Berkeley UCSF Joint Medical Program. In medical school, she serves as the Latino Medical Student Association National Policy Chair and the White Coats for Black Lives UC Berkeley UCSF Joint Medical Program Chapter Director of Policy and Finance. Thank you so much for being here today, Camila, and for your willingness to share your story. It's so appreciated. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Let's start out by, if you can tell us a little bit about your background, what was your upbringing like? What motivated you to become a doctor? And will you be the first uh, doctor in your family? Thank you for asking. Um, so I am from San Diego, California. I grew up actually in a um, in a suburb where that was interesting because it was very conservative for the time, for the age, um, in the early 2000s. And this is relevant because part of what brought me to medicine, the really big part of me bringing me to medicine was really wanting to change the structural issues that I noticed affected my family members, but wasn't affecting the family members around me. And so to speak really honestly, it's because the we were the only Mexican American family in that suburb. Um, and growing up with a lot of the structural issues and the structural racism, even though I didn't have the terms for it that day, it was easy to see the differences between how those families were and and the struggles that my family had. And so I'm not first generation. I think a huge part of my like my story as well is the fact that my mom is a physician. She was the first physician in her family. And before her, my grandparents and my other family members were farm workers. And so there was, you know, always a lot of stories brought down to us in terms of like, this is why we're doing what we're doing in terms of giving back to society. And we owe it to our communities to help support them. And I think when it came to college, that became even more embedded because at first I wanted to go into like the sciences and to like research. And I think it was like biology. Mm-hmm. But I really found myself alone in my classes. And it was really, it was frustrating. And I found myself being excluded from student groups, like very explicitly. Our student groups are like study groups. And I, you know, ended up joining like two different minority groups. So that way I could actually have friends, even if they weren't in my specific classes. And I think, you know, to give some context, so I, for undergrad, went to UC Berkeley majored in molecular and cell biology with a um, minor in Spanish language and literatures. And out of a uh, group of like 400 graduates within that major, I was like one of two Latinas. And the only other one I knew because she was the only other person that I was a lab mate with. Everyone else said no. And when I asked, and so it was really difficult. And that experience, all of those experiences 
are what motivate me to go into medicine because I realize it is a matter of us to support our own people. We are the best people to support our own. And when it comes to health, it's it's a matter of quality of life. And so there was there's always this like passion and drive to not to work on the individual level and help people and be, you know, be a part of my community in that way, but also work on the structural issues. And I really thought that I really think that having that MD grants that um, credibility on both fronts. Yes, I, I agree. It's interesting. You said, so when you were doing your undergrad, you felt that you were almost pushed aside by your peers. I had a similar experience, but if you can, um, just for our listeners, give some examples just so they know what kind of things can happen and why we need to change it. Yeah. So there was, um, I remember it was like freshman year. There was two examples where I explicitly like realized like, wow, this is, this is racism. <laughs> um, yeah. I remember being in a, in a, in an office hour and there was like 30 other people and I was struggling. Like I really struggled with gen chem, biochem, physics. Yeah. That was, you know, which are the principles for your application for your MCAT. Like those, some of those are really core classes. And to be super honest, I am very honest when it comes to my grades and you know the difficulty that i had like i got c's in most of those classes and so you know it was it was really hard and i remember freshman year you know just trying to reach out and ask another student like can you please help me because like i wasn't getting enough attention from my um tas and i you know part mm-hmm. of it was myself i really had to learn how to really advocate for myself and speak up and become very like forward when it comes to reaching out and getting those resources from my TA. But I remember turning to that to that student and her basically telling me like, no, like she's not going to help me and she's going to focus on herself. And, um, you know, she didn't have time or interest or energy to, to even answer my question. And I was like, wow, like this is culturally very different from how I was raised. Like this is not anything that I identify with or can understand or feel like intellectually safe in, in terms of being able to like, because, you know, being able to learn, because I feel like, you know, for the first part, you really are trying to make those connections. And if you don't, you know, you're not only dealing with your like imposter, your own imposter syndrome, but you're also realizing that within, I think to be able to learn effectively, you really have to feel intellectually safe. And that's not going to happen if you are in places with people that don't share your values right, in that way of helping each other. So that was one experience. And then the second experience I kind of alluded to before where um, it was my very last year. And I remember it was a lab class and I had to go to three different rooms. I remember, you know, approaching different students and asking, would you like to be my lab mate? And all of them basically saying no, looking elsewhere, running away. (laughs) Um, I remember going from room to room to room. Finally, in the third room, there was one other person who had nobody else sitting next to her. And so, you know, finally I found a lab mate. And it wasn't surprising that she was the only other Mexican-American within that class, like that entire class. Wow. It's when I realized like, it's not just myself only feeling this way. Like this is a real structural issue. You know, it's, it's interesting because I'm listening to you and I went through a similar situation and this is, I we're talking about in 1998. Okay. 
this in 1998. So not much has changed in all of these years. And I actually had, and it was in a chemistry lab class as well, where I had to find a group. Nobody wanted to have me in their group. And by default, I ended up in one, but it was a group of four. And the other three totally ignored me. So I ended up doing everything on my own because there was no other minority in my lab class. And most of that quarter, we went in the quarter system. I was by myself doing everything. I ended up doing well in the class, but it was it was so lonely. And it's almost like a punch in, in your gut where you already were questioning yourself. And this just like further makes you question yourself. So it's amazing. It's been so many years and, and we're still seeing it, unfortunately. How did you overcome because you, and thank you for sharing how hard the sciences are in college, because uh, Dr. Marina and I are very open about it as well. And with our personal struggles and getting C's, we had, I mean, I think, I, I think also Dr. Marina, but I had C's also in undergrad. How did you overcome and what did you do to improve your grades? At some point, I realized I'm not going to be in a study group until I make my own study groups. And so um, I remember going to office hours really often, getting to know my my TAs really well. I was there as much as possible. And I remember starting a study groups like through Facebook groups. And it wasn't really anything that like really turned out to be very much. But I think it gave me the confidence to kind of to network. Like it was the beginning of me trying to figure out that skill, because that wasn't anything that I'd learned from anyone, and trying to build a community. And so what really ended up being helpful was actually joining two different groups. And the first one is the Biology Scholars Program at UC Berkeley. Um, And I believe it's at other colleges now as well. Um, And then the second group was, well, it was um, Chicanos in Health Education. It's CHE. And um, I think they've had a few different name changes, but both of them were there to support minority students. And uh, it was really like the only way I could find other people who looked like me or who shared my cultural values and, um, and, you know, and were also interested in the sciences. So it was finding my people, trying to take as like study and learn as much as I can with the TAs. I think also when it comes to test anxiety, and this is, you know, about the MCAT, but I really learned this skill in undergrad just because like the tasks were so incredibly hard and I failed so many times <laughs> or just not, not do as well as I, you know, right. <laughs> as I thought I should have. And so, <laughs> and, and I realized for me it was, um, and I'll describe it just because, you know, this, it might be helpful for some people. I realized like during my exams, my mind would literally go elsewhere other than what was on the exam in front of me. Like I could not make myself focus just because I was so anxious. I was trying to avoid it at all costs. And this would be during the exam and I would be just completely gone. And so what I found myself doing was taking those exams and studying with earplugs because I found that if I could create an insular noise, like if I could just make myself feel like in a little cocoon, then I really could sit down and focus and work through that anxiety and I wouldn't get distracted by the people rustling their pages. And so that was a study trick that for me, I still use to this day. And um, when I train for exams, you know, I call it training because I feel like it really is. Um, I try to do everything as similar as possible. And I find that 
I think, you know, back in undergrad, it was like those minority programs. I remember them having like a bank of exams that I could access. And I tried to take as many of those exams as possible. Those few things really helped. Yeah, it sounds like asking for help, one, <laughs> and two, finding a, a group of support, right? And and we feel that those are two very important things. And just sometimes it could be challenging to just actually ask for help and saying, oh, I need help, because we feel that we need to prove to others that we can do this on our own sometimes, when in reality, I think when we all reflect back and even throughout the journey to become a doctor, all of us have needed others and we all needed help. So thank you for sharing that. What would you say was your hardest undergrad class that you struggled with? The very first one was general chemistry, and that was by far the hardest. And that was your first year, right? You said yeah, that you took it. Yeah. So already you're new to the whole college experience. And then this class is really hard. Okay. Um, just for our listeners, I'd like to highlight what Camila's saying because a lot of us struggle with some of those math or science classes. It feels like most of us don't actually do well <laughs> that first time around, but it's okay because um, you can still pick yourself up and still be a doctor. As Camila right now, she's in medical school and I'm a doctor. So just some encouragement in case anybody listening failed a course. It's okay. Or didn't do as well. It's okay. Now, um, Camila, the other the next thing is like, we want to go ahead and I want to ask you a little bit about the MCAT. When did you decide to take the MCAT? And then how did you prepare for it? I took it actually the summer after graduation. And there was a period between graduating and then I entered a master's program. And so that period I decided to move back home, not work, and strictly focus on the MCAT. Before then, like every other summer, I think I was doing like internships. And so it was, you know, it wasn't really possible to like take the time to only focus on the MCAT. And for me, I think that worked pretty well because I took around two and a half months to prepare. And that was around like four to six hours every day for around five days a week. And so that was, that was pretty much my schedule. And what did you do in those four to six hours? Was it just you sitting on your own? Did you do group? Did you do a course? I did a self-paced course through the Princeton Review. And so that for me was very helpful because it allowed me to assess my own. It just allowed me to move at my own pace. I was able to take around seven practice exams within that time. And so, you know, at first I just started off um, using the workbooks and a lot of that was just practice passages. And then I would use, you know, their portal or YouTube to accompany it. And those were just like educational videos. And so it was mostly Kaplan from what I remember, but also just anything else that I could find off of YouTube. And so taking those practice problems over and over and over again, I found were the most effective for me and, and, and the most efficient. And then that really helped me build up to actually taking practice exams. And when it came to taking those practice exams, I remember taking them all at once. So for a full eight hours, and then the second day, going back to the entire exam and reviewing it like question by question. And so that meant that I was going over my wrong answers and I was also going over my right answers. So that way I actually could think through and I was making sure that I wasn't just guessing. 
Did you end up then, um, you said it was a self-paced course, so you did this by yourself without a buddy or anybody else. Is that correct? That's correct, because I didn't really know anyone. I did the same thing. Yeah, exactly. No, I did the same thing. I didn't know anybody. Um, I feel like that was, I mean, you did well. I didn't do as well as you did but (laughs) with the MCAP. But I felt like that that was a, a challenge compared to when you're actually in group study as well. And with the, the self-paced course, just out of curiosity, so is that something you just log into and it kind of guides you on your own? Or do you go to the actual center to study for it? Usually Kaplan also has like a study center. Um, how is the self-paced course actually built that you did that worked for you? It was it was pretty independent. And so I there was a portal with all of the resources and I didn't actually have to go to a center or anything. And so I think, I think in the time of COVID, this is a really good program or, you know, a good way to study just because it's not easy to study on your own. And I wouldn't exactly recommend it, (laughs) Um, but if you have to, you can. And also I want to really want to make a plug that if you are in student groups um, like UC Berkeley, you know, student clubs, organizations, a lot of these organizations will actually partner with the Princeton Review. And so you can get discounts, really good discounts on your programs. And that's how I was able to afford mine. So you applied to some programs through these undergraduate um, uh, organizations, and that's how you funded for your MCAT prep? Right. So I joined them not knowing this before. Um, I joined them. They were One of them in particular was a, um, a class that I actually led about um, being pre-health. And so part of that class we were able to negotiate a contract with the Princeton Review and be able to get our students discounts and like free prep material, um, like free book reviews. And now there's actually a formal contract and the Princeton Review in particular, I, I am not paid to sponsor them. Like also just this is <laughs> it's just me, but it's helpful. Like this is very helpful. They have a specific contract for underrepresented students and with really good discounts. And so it makes it a little bit more affordable. Wow, that's wonderful because it gets pricey the entire process. So that's wonderful to know um, that that's an option because funding is always just another obstacle in getting through it all. So knowing that there's funding available elsewhere is great. Did you end up taking the MCAT more than once or did you just take it once? I only took it once. My MCAT score was strong. It wasn't the best, but it was strong enough to where I felt comfortable only taking it once. Should I go into the percentiles? Yeah, yeah, if you can. If you don't mind sharing the what your score was and your percentiles on the MCAT would be wonderful. My overall score was a 509. And then I remember for biochemistry, you know, that was the most difficult topic for me. And I remember that was like 65 percentile and then chemistry section was like 75 percentile and then my cars which is like the critical reading section that was 90 percentile and then my psych section was 96 percentile and so there was a spectrum in terms of performance all of them were above 50 percentile so I was like that's great you know I felt confident enough or I was like okay there was also a little bit of like, I don't even know if I could do better realistically when it came to biochemistry, but it was at that point, I was just ready to just apply. That's great. Good for you, Camila. That's wonderful. 
it when you reflect back and thinking about the MCAT, you did great. And just thinking about, we talk a lot about that a lot of our experiences and our performance has to do with just the psychological barriers that we go through. What would you say were your psychological barriers as you were preparing for the MCAT? Definitely test anxiety. And so um, to combat that, I would run every single day. And I remember this one experience, one time where I did not run, only one day. (laughs) And um, I remember waking up talking to my mom and then just bursting into tears for no reason. You know, I was just like, um, really, really anxious about it. And so I, I found like building that into my day and then, um, being with friends like once a week, at least was, was also very helpful because it helped me just kind of get out of, you know, just bring me back to reality and who I was and, um, and my community. And how was the actual, like, the day that you took MCAT? How did you overcome? Because the anxiety, I think, overall for everyone is high. But when you have struggled, I swear, at that moment, you think about everything. Well, at least for myself, I started thinking about, like, oh, I remember when I didn't do good in this class. You know, all those negative thoughts that just can come in, the fears and so forth. How did you get through it? Or what was that actual day like for you? I remember, you know, on my way to the exam, like really just crying. Like I was driving myself and I just burst out into tears. And honestly, I feel like it was probably the best thing I could have done because it was, I was able to like physically get out the anxiety and all of the concerns and the worries. And not to say that I wasn't concerned the rest of the day, but it was enough for where I could hold it together during the exam, right? And I do remember I brought my earplugs and I had already kind of like experimented with what foods to bring. I remember going, I knew where I was going because I practiced like driving there and trying to find the room beforehand. Like I did everything I could possibly do to alleviate any concerns like the day of. And psychologically, I remember feeling like, hey, I don't exactly feel ready for this exam. And I don't think anybody ever really does. But I felt like, you know, if anything, this is like the best I'm ever going to (laughs) do. Like this is, you know, at some point, it's just like, um, you kind of have to bite the bullet. And I say that because I had a lot of friends, like a lot of friends who never felt comfortable enough taking, like we were performing the same on practice exams, but they, I think a lot of them were too anxious and, you know, and let that stop them from actually taking the exam and then going into medicine in the end. And so I feel like that, you know, it is such a barrier and it's important that, you know, if you know, you've done as as much as you can, there's nothing to stop you. And so I encourage everyone to just trust yourself in the process and like, know that you're going to get through it and you're going to get on the other side. And if you have to take it a second time, literally everyone has to take it a second time. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. And um, if anything, it only just makes you stronger and it makes you have even more of a story when it comes to telling your story. Thank you for saying that. I've I've been in some panels where students that took the MCAT for the first time, they feel really discouraged and and you know, they put themselves down that they are they're going to have to take it again and I and I tell them, you know, a lot of people, I mean, we're we're starting to talk about it more, but a lot of medical students take it more than once and don't feel bad. It's it's okay. So thanks for sharing that. Now, I'm going to change gears a little bit. What I want to ask you now is 
How has medical school been like for you? How have these first couple of years through medical school, what, it's, what, what has it been like? Just for our listeners to hear your perspective on, on what life has been. It's been interesting. I feel like it's definitely a journey. I'm very much still learning a lot more about myself and others. And I think all of the tools that I learned from undergrad has really helped and served me well in this context. And so um, in terms of finding my people has made the absolute difference because honestly, and to speak very, very honestly, it's, you know, not everyone goes into medicine for the same reasons. Like I want to go to be, you know, serve my community and to be a part of something bigger and to work with others who share the same vision that I have when it comes to like our families and our families being strong and healthy and happy. But a lot of people don't have the same backgrounds, especially because we are underrepresented within medicine. And so, you know, for some people, it can, these things, problems can be intellectual, which is fine, but it's, you know, sometimes they may not say that the right things, or they're still trying to figure out what's important to them, which is fine. But I think when it comes to being happy within medicine, it's all about like finding the people that you can study with, you can party with, you can, you can, you can relax and be really honest with and, and vulnerable because it is the first two years are all coursework with a little bit of clinical experiences. And so you do sometimes lose sight of the bigger picture and why you're doing this. And so it's those experiences with the people that share your values that can really help you through it. And as far as with the studying, have you ended up studying in studying groups while you're in medical school? Like what's working for you? Totally. I learn the most from my, my friends. And so we we have a really strong group and um, I'm really fortunate that they are so strong in so many different ways. And so when we study, we study, um, but it's also a lot of fun. And so it makes it, it makes it all better. Yeah. I remember those days and you have to make it fun. I guess it depends like your personality as well, but just you're studying hardcore, but then the joking around, the laughing, and it makes it a positive experience because it is a lot of studying, but you need to feel like there's some positivity that comes with it. And I like how you said you still do fun stuff with your friends as well, because it's having that balance too is very important. Do you know what type of doctor you want to be yet, Camila? I'm really interested in family medicine. <laughs> Not a surprise, right? <laughs> yeah. I really very care. I really do. So I'm really hoping to to go into family medicine. And and for our listeners, her mom is a family medicine doctor too. So you're following mom's footsteps, it sounds like. <laughs> but that's great. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Not a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. I like being a primary care doctor as well. So awesome. And and we need you. <laughs> oh, do we need you? So that's wonderful. Can you tell us, you said um, you're involved in LMSA, White Coast for Black Lives. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that? Uh, um, what's that like? And especially to give students an idea of how even as a medical student, you can contribute to the society around you to make a change. Right. So I got involved in both programs right around the same time, but to focus first on White Coats for Black Lives, um, I, along with my three other or four other medical classmates and closest friends, we founded this chapter, which is a national organization. But we founded this chapter in particular because we were we were really shocked by the lack of representation 
within our school and, you know, and outside of our school. And this is actually Aminta Kuyate, who I believe you, you talked to. Yeah, she started the Pathway Development Program. And so that is really um, like a seminar series for pre-medical students and um, just to help them become a little bit more aware of the medical school application process and all of the different hoops and the MCAT and the personal statement when it comes to applying to medical school. And so that was something that I got, I was involved in, like, you know, helped write the grant to be able to try to address the local issues that I saw. But then I also joined the Latino Medical Student Association to find more students, really, you know, just more Latino students. I think I was one of two within my entire cohort. And then at some point for a year, like the entire program. (laughs) And so, you know, joining a group like that was really helpful. And um, it has, throughout the years, I've really expanded my interest to include health policy and health administration. And so now in the Latino Medical Student Association, I serve as the national policy chair along with my fellow chair. And so there's two of us and we are leading a policy conference to get other medical students really interested and invested in advocating, but also we're leading several different, like we have several different partnerships to lead different initiatives for different different issues like immigration or for DACA students or for COVID relief. Wow, you are already doing amazing work. I love it. That's great. And hopefully you continue even when you become a family medicine doctor. But it's just nice to hear that because sometimes that the demand for medical school is a lot, but for students who haven't gotten there yet, there are experiences that you can become involved in that help keep you motivated to keep studying because you become connected to making a change, like just like how Camila is doing. So awesome work you're doing, Camila. Awesome work. Thank you. So uh, reflecting back to your undergraduate college years, is there anything different you would do or would have done? Yes. You know, I went into molecular and cell biology because I really thought that, you know, as <laughs> it, it's so crazy, but I've heard this, this talked about amongst other students as well. I thought, you know, as a Latina, there's like literally no one in this, so I'm going to do it and I'm going to show them that, you know, we can. <laughs> and honestly, I really wish that I had given myself permission to look outside of that major. And so now looking back, you know, I really love public health and global health. And that is, you know, those are the values that I align with most. And I think I would have had so such a different experience and really have met the people that I, I could really enjoy being around if I had actually taken public health classes. So I encourage you, everyone to um, allow yourself to do what feels right in terms of don't keep yourself centered, or so focused if you find that this isn't working for you, give yourself the permission to look elsewhere. I think one of the things that kind of inhibited me from doing that was always this like mentality of like, put your head down and keep going and don't ask for help. Right. And so I think that only contributed to why I wasn't actually looking outside of it. And so if you're able to kind of get your head back up, look around, see what else is interesting, then you can actually start finding things that start working like with you instead of against you. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful advice. (laughs) I couldn't have said it better. 
Before closing, if you can give one piece of advice to both first year pre-med college students, so the ones that are going to just start college this fall that are thinking about becoming doctors, and also to any pre-med undergraduate students that are thinking about taking the MCAT, what would it be? Yeah. So for pre-meds just entering college, I would definitely say um, find your people in any capacity that you can and make sure you stick with them. And anyone else who is not helping you, try to just avoid them. You know, <laughs> and I see that. You know, it's just it's. If anything, I see it's like protective. Um, so work with the people that are going to work with you. And so for pre-meds about to take the MCAT, I highly encourage for everyone to focus on their mental health because I feel like the mental health aspect is part of the biggest challenge when it comes to preparing for the MCAT and the actual test day. And so that means reaching out to your social support system, at least for me it did. The advice that you're saying, it's very true. A lot of it is psychological, right? So in preparing the MCAT, I mean, you just said something so important is don't ignore that anxiety, that fear, or any doubt, self-esteem issues, right? Because if you address them early on, it only helps you perform better. So I think it's important. And that's why we stress there's a mental health, there's usually mental health, um, and a mental health office in every college campus, because it's needed. And if you need it, don't be scared to use it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, future Doctora Hurtado, for being here with us today and giving us your time. I'm so excited that you will be joining the world of medicine and contributing to improving healthcare disparities. I hope our listeners today have gained a little bit more wisdom as they pursue their path to medicine. I'm sure someone that's listening today will be able to relate to your story future Dr. Camila, and hopefully have that aha moment. If you are listening to our podcast, it is because you are meant to be a doctor and you belong in the world of medicine. No matter what anyone else has ever told you before or whatever obstacles or failures that have happened in the past, you are here listening because you are supposed to be a doctor. So let's get it done. Thank you to all of our listeners for the love and support. And please don't forget to share our podcast with anyone who may benefit from it. Please let us know what you think, what you like, or what you don't like, or what you want to hear. You can contact us on Instagram, Facebook, or email us directly through our website, www.futureminoritydoctor.com. And remember, you can now listen to the podcast on YouTube as well. Lastly, if you are able to, donate to our podcast to keep this effort going. Peace and love, everyone.